If you would, take your Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. If you're a first-time guest with us here this morning, we're thankful that you're able to join us. And if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. There's one in the seat in front of you, and that is our gift to you. We've been in this passage, and particularly in these, past, in these uh, two verses for several weeks now, we're going to be dealing with verses 4 and 5 for the last, potentially the last time. Um, and what a joy it's been. John said that he's writing for our joy. So if we read what John writes and we don't come away with joy, we've either misread the text or there's something wrong in our hearts. So there is great joy coming to these verses again. We've been reminded that to be a follower of Christ means that we are people who don't find the law of God a burden. It's not a, a, a challenge to us. It, it's something, in fact, that we love and delight in. It's not something that we've kept perfectly in our own strength. We know that we need Christ every moment. And in fact, that's what John goes on to say. It's interesting how he brings up the law not being a burden, and then he immediately pivots to deal with being overcomers because he knows that we need to understand in the face of not finding the law uh, not burdensome, that there's a tendency in the human heart to think that we could uh, please God somehow in our own strength according to the law. And what we need to know is that in fact, it is only through Christ that we overcome. We've learned that we have overcome the world. Last week, we learned that we have everything that we need in Jesus. We also learned that that overcoming doesn't happen by monasticism or motivational thinking. That we have ultimate joy in overcoming this present evil age only in Christ. Knowing that we are born of God, we have overcome. John writes of this. In his, for in his Gospel, in the first chapter, in the first 13 verses, I think understanding John's emphasis here of overcoming only in Christ, I want you to hear these words with that in mind. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but He came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
We stand this morning having overcome all that is in the world by the power of divine grace alone. Our faith in Christ makes our victory in Christ real and practical. There's this problem that we come to in our walk of faith where we can begin to to slide into the ditch of, of our understanding of the Gospel only being something in our minds. But in fact, what John wants us to understand is that the victory we have in Christ is something that is very real in this world. It impacts everything about our lives. There is not any area of our life that our overcoming victory in the Lord Jesus Christ is not sufficient. That's a great joy. Whatever we face this morning, the Bible doesn't paint a rosy picture of this world. It doesn't mean we just gloss over um, what we struggle with, but we can really know and contend for the faith that we have, knowing that we have overcome. So the question that we must ask today, knowing that we have overcome in Christ, is how do we live the Christian life? How do we actually overcome in experience? How do we live that out? We have overcome, we are overcoming, but how is it that we are overcoming? I'm glad you've asked that question. We have these verses that deal with that. If you would stand and hear God's Word. John, writing here under the inspiration of the one that gives us strength and energy and life today. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Beloved, this is God's Word to us today. Would you pray with me? Father God, might you grant that we would ever hold your glory before our gaze as we ponder the mysteries of your word this morning. Make your word swift passing from our ears to our hearts, from our hearts into our lives, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word return void, but accomplish everything for which you sent it. Father, would you work in our lives today to inscribe on our hearts what it means not only to believe that we have everything that we need sufficient to overcome the world in Christ, but to actually walk in that reality. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. may be seated. So the question again is how do we overcome in this life? How do we overcome a world that lies in the power of the evil one? Friends, don't miscalculate that declaration in verse 19. The world lies in the power of one who at God's behest and with His permission can wield instruments of the natural world. 
who can cause affliction and great pain and deception, who is alive and well in the systems of thought, who is constantly contorting even inside of the church the truths of the Word of God, that the, the world that we have before us to overcome is not just a small list of personal problems. It's a world that is led by Satan himself. And we need to square with that reality. I think one of the things we've talked about when we walked through Ephesians is that one of great, uh, Satan's greatest devices in uh, being at work in the world is to cloak himself. To make people believe that he doesn't even exist. Uh, we come to the point of, and, and friends, I'll tell you this. I think in Baptist circles, we are so scared of being accused of being slightly Pentecostal that we don't talk about Satan because we don't want to, to, to sound as those who blame everything on Satan, right? Well, that's an error as well. We, we need to think about Satan and the world and the demonic forces that we face the way that the Bible speaks. And the way that the Bible speaks isn't to discount the reality that those things exist. The reality that the Bible speaks is that we have overcome them in Christ. And so this idea, well, the devil made me do it. Are you in Jesus? Because if you are, then that statement can't hold water. You are more than an overcomer in Christ. But how? How do, we, how do we live out? And friends, we know that we are tempted of Satan. We know that the world vies for our affection. And we sang this morning that all too often we, we find our, uh, our, our loves in the here and now. We, we find things that satisfy us here instead of finding our joy and our hope in the Gospel. And, and so when we ask this question, how do we overcome the world? I'm going to give you two primary categories. One we overcome directly, and the other indirectly. One we overcome by exercising our faith in Christ. Secondly, indirectly, by meditating on who Christ is. By meditating on the subject of our faith. Knowing who Christ actually is. So first, we overcome knowing that we have everything in Christ by directly resting in in Christ. We gain victory by resting in the power and the ability of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Our faith rests in the reality that Jesus is the Son of God. What is here in the, in the very last part of verse 5. Our faith is to move directly in the direction of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, chapter 5, verse 4, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith, our faith in Christ, our belief in Him, and that He is the Son of God and that we can rest in Him no matter what comes. There is this great Proverbs in Proverbs 18, verse 10. The name of our Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. 
The, the way that we deal with the problems of our life is not to straighten our backs and deal with what comes in our own strength. The way that we deal with the onslaught of temptation and discouragement and all of the things that come with living in a fallen, dark world that is in the power of the evil one is that when we see that world coming and it's like a train barreling down on us, we don't go, boy, we're strong enough to withstand this train. The foolishness of living that kind of life is to miss the impact of all of the Old Testament. To see that every single man, no matter how great in the faith that he was, if he stood in his own strength, in his own ability, he was leveled by the world that came after him. The only way that we can stand in overcoming the world is when we see problems coming, we, we, we're honest with ourselves and we go, that is way too big for me, I'm going to run to Christ. I'm going to rest in Him. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to flee to Him because although, he, although I will be overcome, He has never been undone by this world. We see this everywhere in the Psalms. The psalmist, and friends, I had a brother who was here with us for several years text me earlier this week, and he said, are you still preaching the Psalms? And I'm like, boy, you still sound like, like a church member. Um, he, I said, yes, we are on Psalm 128, and we, we rejoiced. And one of the things that I love about the Psalter is that it shows us the dimensions of real Christian authentic life in a broken and fallen world. The psalmist doesn't put lipstick on the pig. The psalmist points out that we are frail and that we suffer with anxieties and depression. There is kind of this verbose attitude in the church that if we are Christians, we don't have problems. If you are a Christian that thinks being a Christian means you don't have problems, your first problem is up here. Because absolutely... We are weak. Our frame is but dust. And the psalmist is constantly coming at the reality that this world is too much. And do you know the, the wonderful thing that if you really walk through all of the psalms that you will understand is that regardless of who's writing the psalm, the solution only comes when the psalmist turns from the earth and looks to the heavens. The psalmist is only helped when they step back from the things of this world and they, they name honestly the problems that they face, but then they turn to God. And they realize that no matter what God ordains in their life, no matter what He sovereignly allows in their life, if they are in Him, they are safe. And that is our joy today as well. We find our refuge in God and in God alone. We don't seek to attempt to battle. Friends, this is one of the reasons why when some nutneck that spent six years in a seminary writes a book about five steps to overcoming this problem and the first step is not flee to Jesus, close the book and burn it. But the church is filled with this junk. I want five steps to a better marriage. And all of the five steps are just practical things that the world could give. Now, if I want a better marriage, then when that marriage is bearing down and it's difficult and, and, and there's struggles in that relationship, the, the, the right response isn't to, well, I'm going to be better at this. 
Like Sarah would laugh at me if I tried that. And I had, and has had many opportunities to laugh at me when I've tried to do that nonsense. The right thing to do is to run to Christ. And husbands, to remember, we are informed about how to love our spouses, our bride, by Christ, by looking to His example and also resting in who He is and knowing that He is the perfect husband and we aren't. We need to have deeply planted into our souls that when problems come, the first place we run is not out into the world for advice. The first place we run is to our high tower, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Reality is this is not only in the Psalter, it's not only in the Old Testament, it's all throughout the New Testament. We see this in John's dealing with the doctrine of the vine and the branches of our union with Christ that we are like engrafted branches and that without Christ we can do nothing. When we hear that from John chapter 15, without, when Jesus says, without me you can do nothing. If that was a mere human being speaking, that would be an absolutely arrogant statement. But those words flow from the lips of love that inform us that there is nothing that we will accomplish of eternal weight and significance overcoming the world without fleeing to Christ. Everything that we do apart from Him is an exercise in futility. Paul understood this reality when he said in Philippians chapter 4, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And again when he said in Galatians chapter 2, Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. If Paul was asked, Paul, what was your missional strategy? What were your core values of your ministry? What were, and all of the modern kinds of questions that are evoked constantly in ministries and in life, Paul would have answered, I decided to know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. Uh, We all need to flee there. We need to know Him. We need to rest in Him. Friends, is, is it not true in your life that most of, think about it, Most of your failures, if not all of them, come at a time when you seek to live in your own strength and by your own wisdom. When you seek to live the Christian life in those early days of being a Christian, and you say to yourself, I am so thankful that I see who Jesus is and the reality that He's called me away from sin, I'm just not going to sin anymore. And that lasts all of about five minutes. Because somebody will come along and they'll irritate you. And you'll roll your eyes or you'll have some dispositional weight in your heart that is off and not glorifying to Christ. Friends, when we attempt to live and to overcome the world in our own strength, to face the problems directly in our own ability, we will fail. But the great comfort this morning of the Word of God is that we have a high tower in Christ. And we can run to Him and know that every single battle has been won through Him. We are not ever told that we will win the battle in our own strength. Rather, we are told that every time we must humble ourselves and merely look to Jesus. I think one of the most wonderful facets of more modern church history 
is the story surrounding Charles Spurgeon's conversion. If you don't know Charles Spurgeon, he was called, is called today, the Prince of Preachers. He preached in the Victorian age, and he has the, um, the accolade of having more of his, uh, he has more uh, writing in his body of work than anyone who has ever written. Uh, the brother was absolutely indefatigable in his ministry, constantly at work to expound what the Scriptures mean, uh, used of God mightily to convert so many people, and even after uh, his own death, his writings continued to be used for the glory of God and the kingdom of heaven in that respect. Uh, so this great man... If we're not careful, we can look to and we can say, wow, I just want to be like him. I, I, I want to just mimic. And in fact, if you know the Reformed crowd today, you will know that there are thousands upon thousands of 20 and 30-year-old men that are trying to pull off a good-looking beard or goatee in honor of Charles Spurgeon. And we see even in that all too often that we can do nothing without the grace of God. I told Sarah that I was going to do that. I said, I just want a reformed beard. And she said, you can go get a fake one and like stick it on, but no, not happening. All of that to say, this was a great man, and he really is helpful. When you read what Spurgeon writes, you just have to stop and go, well, that's so obviously in the text, but I would have never seen it had he not said it. I mean, he's just helpful. Do you know how, how he was converted? It wasn't through this methodical study. It wasn't because uh, he went to the greatest you know, religious camp in the day and was given the greatest presentation of the gospel. What ended up happening is on a snowy evening, he ended up going to a Methodist church and the pastor was not able to be there. And so another individual, whether I think it was a deacon, had stepped into the pulpit to preach that evening. And there was a very sparsely attended church service. And the text that this beloved brother used was Isaiah 45, verse 22. Look unto me, all, uh, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none other. And this particular brother apparently decided to pick on a 16-year-old Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Spurgeon writes, The preacher managed to spin, that out, spin out for 10 minutes. He rambled on this particular subject. And then he looked out at his congregation and picked on Spurgeon. Young man, you look very miserable. Well, said Spurgeon, I do look miserable, but I had not been accustomed to having remarks made from the pulpit about my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow struck, in the, struck right at, at, at my heart. The preacher went on, and you will always be miserable. Miserable in your life, miserable in death. If you do not obey this text, if you do not flee to Christ, if you do not but look to Him, just a look in Christ's direction, and He will save you. Spurgeon later said, I thank God that I owe my conversion to Christ to this unknown person who certainly was no minister in the ordinary exception of the term, but who could say this much, look unto Christ and be saved all you ends of the earth. Friends, we should never complicate the Gospel beyond that reality of begging people to look to Christ. 
constantly in every area of our lives seeking but to find our refuge in Him. That Jesus is enough in every area of our life. And resting in the reality that the object of our faith matters far more than the veracity of our faith. That believing in Christ is enough. And in that moment, in those moments where we flee to Christ, where we lean into our place of refuge, we have to be reminded that this isn't just our believing against reality, but that reality is as we lean into our strong tower that Christ is near, that He is real, and that He is at hand. That He is constantly moving in the direction of His children and giving them refuge in a dark world. God's people have always looked to Him for strength. Who can forget that wonderful verse in Second Chronicles chapter 20 when Jehoshaphat has gathered all of Israel together because this great army is coming against them and they don't know what to do because the world that is against them is far greater than they are. It is a formidable army. And Jehoshaphat says, O oh, our God, Will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. John chapter 3, John reminds us here of Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so we must... The Son of Man, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. That is how we have victory, friends. We look to Christ. And to the modern mindset, that is far too trivial and trite and sounds religious. And do you know why that is? Because they've never considered the object at which we are, be, are, are looking. Because the world, when they hear us talking about looking to Jesus, they conceive in their mind of a deity that is of no greater value than any idol that man has conceived. But the reality is, Jesus is far better than we could ever ask or hope or think. And so we must constantly look to Him. And that brings us to the second point of how we live out our overcoming faith. First, by simply and directly looking to Him. But then, there is this part that's going to require thinking on our part. We must not only look to Him and say we're looking to Jesus, but we must go on to grow in our faith actually thinking through who is this Jesus? What has He actually done? You see, there is a way in which if we are not careful, we will concoct with our own mind nothing more than an idol that we are looking at. We will mold Jesus to fit. I, I, there is one phrase that drives me nuts more than any other, and it's this, my Jesus would never do this. You don't have this personal little pocket idol Jesus that you get to determine what He will and will not do. He is the sovereign Lord of all of the universe and He has disclosed who He is in the Word of God from Genesis all the way to Revelation. 
And so what we must do to appropriate the overcoming faith that we have is first, yes, run to Jesus. But then secondly, we must constantly and with all of our energy and all throughout our lives continue to dive deep into the Word to behold who this Jesus actually is. And friends, we all have to come to the Word, if I can be so bold this morning, as beggars acknowledging the reality, no matter if we've been in the faith for three months or 30 years or 50 years, that we have far more to learn about this Jesus than we have understood and learned. We've got to quit coming to the Word with with preconceived conceptions of who Jesus is that don't actually fit the text. I don't know how many times I've opened the Word of God and I've found that the reason why in so many of my early years I struggled in so many areas of my life was simply because I had misunderstood who Christ actually is and what He has actually accomplished. So we must understand. Friends, look at verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one that believes Jesus is the Son of God? The most important thing about you is how you define that last phrase. Jesus is the Son of God. What does that mean? What does it mean to be an overcomer of the world who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? It takes more than a Sunday school answer one time to allow the weight of that statement to sink into your life. In fact, I would tell you it takes all of your life for you to understand what that means. So what is held here? Well, the first thing that we have to ask of what that statement means is, well, if Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of God has come into the world, why has Jesus come into the world? If I'm an individual who's overcome the world and I say I believe that He is the Son of God and that He has come into this world, what is my answer when I am asked, well, why has He come? Why did Jesus leave the throne room of heaven to come and to dwell with sinful men? Was it to build great social social empires? Was it to build great works of charity? Was it to make men morally better? Was it to provide peace? Was it to bring political reform and new ideologies to mankind that would soothe the problems that He faces? And the answer to all of those questions is no. The reason that Jesus came on the authority of John the Apostle is because this world lies in the power of the evil one. And because that evil one would overcome everyone here today were it not for Jesus. The reason that Jesus came is because we live in a world that is saturated with evil and we would die under the weight of our own evil had He not come. Now is that not a helpful delineating point? When we start to think about our walk with Christ, and when someone comes to the platform and says, I have a great social program for the church, and if you would just promote that social program, or I have a great political candidate, if you would just vote for him, the world would be better. It helps us to realize the reason that Jesus came is because we were evil, dead in our trespasses and sins, and had he not made a way, For our salvation, we would still relish our sin. 
we would still love everything that is dead spiritually in the earth. He, he came because the world is dominated by sin. Every man, woman, and child is dominated by sin. Friends, here is the haunting reality of the modern church movement. The second that you start to talk about sin or to tell people that they're sinners, somebody will raise the question, well, that's going to make people feel uncomfortable. Jay, it's Sunday morning. We have visitors here. It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, the triune God of heaven is here. And the visitors need to be confronted with the reality that they're sinful. That we're all sinful. And here's what I know. A church that doesn't proclaim that we are radically depraved, utterly in our humanity, lost without the grace of God, is not a church that is overcoming the world. It is a church that has been overcome by the world. Friends, we have to hold fast to this doctrine that Jesus didn't come just to give us an easy life. I think I've shared this with you before, but I was at another local church that was teaching on a particular charismatic topic. And the whole spin of the topic was that if you just have enough faith and if you bind demons, then you won't struggle in your health. And, and what, God's real, what Jesus has really come for is so that when you go get, and the teacher literally said this, she said, I received a cancer diagnosis and I looked that doctor in the face and I bound the cancer in the name of Jesus and I cast it out. That all sounds fine until the camera's not looking at the person on the stage but rather at every 70 and 80 year old person in that particular congregation who has tears running down their faith face thinking if i only had more faith maybe i wouldn't be sick and we see how disgusting that contortion of why jesus came really is jesus came that we might be set free from our sin And see, this is the whole reality. When we get this one question right, why is it that Jesus came? Then we start to see the rest of the world for what it actually is. We see the problem. Jesus came not as some sort of support person to prop us up to have better political systems and and adjunct ministries and all of these things that we would overcome our own problems and our own strength. Jesus came because we were radically dead in our trespasses and sins and we needed someone to rescue us. And when we can see the world from that perspective, then we begin to understand the problem and we're no longer dominated by trying to fix what is wrong in the world. One of the most helpful statements that I've heard from a brother in Christ about the world, and this was made in the parameters, I think, of an eschatological or an end times discussion. He said, what we know for sure is that the world is broken and that we cannot fix it. We are not the instruments by which the world is redeemed. That's Jesus. It is His job. That is what He is doing. Someone will argue, well, if you believe this, if you think that that Jesus came to atone for the sins of those who would call upon His name and He didn't come to set up charities and all of the other things. And friends, we should express our faith in charitable works. I'm not speaking against that. 
But there are those who will say, if Jesus wasn't first and primarily about those things, then you'll teach the church merely to become passive and nothing will get done in the world. That's not true at all. When we understand that Jesus came because the world was overcome with sin, then we will rightly begin to do the very best thing that we can for our neighbor and we will say, look to our high tower. Look to Christ. Look to the author and finisher of our faith. Whatever problem you are struggling with, look to Jesus. Rest in Christ. Friends, this is the reason why often, and I know I've frustrated the absolute snot out of some of you, but when I say we shouldn't be too politically minded in the church, it's for a reason. Because when, when, when a Christian becomes so immersed into a political ideology that he'll get angry at, with his brothers and sisters in the faith, what he is missing is the reality of what the world system is and the reality that every political party is ultimately a part of that world system. Now, I'm not saying that we don't have a civic responsibility and that we shouldn't vote, but I can tell you this. If both House, House and Senate and the White House were controlled by the GOP and the Supreme Court was filled with all conservative justices, Jesus would still have to have come. The problem of the world would still overcome every lost person without Christ. So our solutions can't be rooted in political ideologies, political theories, because both political parties are neck deep in sin. Christians should ultimately exercise wisdom in these areas, but these are not areas where we find our identity. Our identity is rather in Christ. Then we look to the New Testament and we see Jesus there overcoming the world. We see Him being tempted by Satan um, and, and Satan seeking to conquer Christ. But we see Jesus in absolutely impeccable and not able to sin, not able to, to respond in that way, but standing firm. When, when Satan tempted Satan, eh, eh, when, when Satan tempted Jesus, it was like Satan shooting a BB gun at a freight train. He wasn't going to flinch. He didn't even bend a little. So when you struggle in temptation, what should you do? You should run to Christ knowing that Christ is the one who didn't bend even a little bit under the weight of temptation of this world. We see Him, the one who is valiant and who has overcome we look at the Old Testament again and we see all of these different patriarchs, men who genuinely sought to honor God, but ultimately every one of them having a moral failure. And we don't, we, we don't want to be people who read into the Old Testament more of a, a hero complex than what is there. The Bible ultimately reveals every Old Testament patriarch for who they are. Men who are overcome by their own sin. But then we get to the New Testament and we see this one man who doesn't even flinch at the systems of the world. We see in the resurrection that he's even overcome the last enemy of, of death. That Satan clawing at people and dragging them into death ultimately was defeated and, and Christ rose over the grave. We see Jesus victorious in that way. And then we go on to see the reality that we belong to this risen Christ. This morning, no matter what your ailment, 
No matter what your financial condition, no matter what your relational struggles, no matter your vocation, if you are in Christ, you have reason to rejoice. Because the Christ that we are in has really overcome the world. As, as Brian mentioned earlier, John chapter 16, that last verse. I have said these things to you, Jesus says, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I, I, I wish, one of my peripheral desires for the church is that we would stop using so much of the, the vernacular that I think is confusing of describing whether someone has a real relationship or not with the Lord and use biblical terms. And I think one of the most glorious biblical terms is being in Christ. I think one of the most loving questions you can ask someone is, are you in Christ? Uh, the, the, the question of are you saved is really a diluted question. When, when people, you ask someone that, they're going to think, well, I prayed a prayer and I went to a youth camp and then I live like hell, but I think I'm good. But the better question is, are you in Christ? Have you overcome this world by your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? And, and, and that whole idea, again, of, of union with Christ and being rooted in Him, being a branch from the vine and having access to everything that He is, is such a comforting reality. Because we, again, share in all of His triumph and victory. We draw from all of His strength. Verse 16 of John chapter 1, just verses after what I read early, earlier this morning. For from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. If you were to ask me this morning, Jay, why is it that you're a Christian? The only answer that I could rightly give in the face of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is grace. It is only by the kindness of Christ. And if I were to be asked this morning, why is it that you are growing in your relationship with Jesus in such a way that you depend on Him more today than you did 16 years ago? And why is it that you continue to follow Him? Grace upon grace. It's all grace. It's all of what He has done. It's not because I was born into the right family. It's not because I go to the right kind of church. It's not because I've done the right things. It's because Christ has overcome the world and because I am in Him. John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall, never, shall not hunger. And whoever blesses, excuse me, believes in Me shall never thirst. We have overcome by ultimately resting in Him and then growing in our meditating on who He is. Is immediately somebody will say, Yeah, well, what about when we fail? What about when we lived the Christian life? And I have a dear brother who has made a, a serious moral failing in the past several weeks. Breaks my heart. Now, what do we say when those kinds of things happen in our lives? Well, I guess you've dishonored the Lord. Satan will rise up and say, You're not worthy. You should just hang your head in shame for the rest of your life. You should stop doing anything for the Lord. You should back away from the church because they're just going to judge you anyway. Friends, that's the world and that's Satan speaking. 
Because the same Jesus who causes us and calls us to to cling to Him and to flee to Him in overcoming the world is the same Jesus that when we are overcome by the world in our sin tells us to get back up and return to Him. To cling to Him. And to know that His mercies are new every morning. That's why John wrote in verse 9 of chapter 1, if we confess with our If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or in the very first part of chapter 2, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And we talked about how that world there at the very end is a teleological world. That is, His sacrifice is sufficient for the world that is yet to come, the one that He is redeeming. So if you are here this morning, and you're struggling with the weight of conviction of your sin, can I give you this encouragement? Run to Christ and then meditate on who He is. If you're struggling with your health this morning, run to Christ and meditate on who He is. If you're struggling with relationships in in your family this morning, run to Christ and meditate on who He is. These are the twofold steps to overcoming the world. I hope they're helpful to you. Because the reality is, we will live our lives constantly being bombarded by the world. But Jesus has given us these things that we can constantly run to Him and we can meditate on His goodness. We can constantly cling to Him and know that He is going to bring to completion that which He started. And ultimately, that's the last thing that I think we need to think about in this whole train of thought of meditating on Jesus. How do we overcome the world? How do we apply this faith? One of the things when life gets really difficult is we need to meditate on the fact that our victor is going to accomplish the ends for which He came. There is going to be a day when we will all be gathered in glory. We will all be able to say that we no longer sin. Like, I'm going to run up to Brian that day and be like, try to sin. I can't, brother. And I'm going to be like, praise God! It's going to be fantastic. It's going to be a good day that we no longer have to say goodbye to people we've loved in this place. Sin's no longer going to conquer us in death. But we are going to stand before our tower, before Jesus. And what we will know in that moment is that in Christ, there is grace upon grace. Friends, may that be the refrain of all of our lives. That the first grace is looking to Him and the second grace is continuing to meditate on His goodness. Would you pray with me? Father, You are so merciful. We don't deserve even a first look at Christ. And yet, You are the lifter of our heads. You are the One who has called us out of the darkness and into the light. You are the one who, when we fail, you convict us by the work of your Spirit. You call us back to yourself. Father, we are weak and we struggle in the flesh. You are strong. You have overcome the world. Might we have wisdom to walk in our lives beholding the riches of Christ and applying all that that means 
in his conquering power to the way that we live before your face. In Christ's name, amen. If you would stand and sing it as well with my soul. Thank you. 